Hello and welcome to another Motorsport Magazine podcast. Now, you might be wondering where Never Missed a Podcast Rob Widows is. Well, he's out at the Nürburgring 24 hours. So you've got me today, Ed Foster, and I'm joined by Nigel Roebuck, Simon Aaron, and a very special guest, but more on him in a bit. First of all, I'd love to tell you about our latest subs offer. Now, without these subs, we wouldn't be doing the podcast, so please listen carefully. At the moment, you can sign up for 12 or 24 issues of Motorsport, and you will receive Simon Taylor's Motorsport Greats book absolutely free. The Motorsport Greats book is a compilation of all the best Lunch With articles that he's done in the magazine from 2006 to present, and they are a truly great read. So that's 12 or 24 issues, and receive his book absolutely free. Prices start at 49.99. So how to do this? Go to motorsportmagazine.com forward slash P-O-D-M-B. That's pod, and then the initials of our guest. Motorsportmagazine.com forward slash pod M for mother B. So, our guest. He's an ex Formula One driver for Tyrrell, Zach Speed, Brabham, Benetton, Ligier, McLaren, and Jordan. He was a test driver for Williams, and he won the Le Mans 24 hours. On his day, he beat Ayrton Senna, he beat Michael Schumacher. But despite all of this, most of us know him as the guy who walks up and down the Formula One grid chatting to the drivers before the start of each race. Yep, you've got it. It's Martin Brundle. Well, Martin, a uh, very warm welcome. And uh, if my sources are correct, you're fresh from a, a seat fitting, are you not? I am. I've been at McLaren this morning in the MP423, uh, the car that crossed the line when Hamilton won the World Championship in 2008. We're doing a feature in June. I think there are four McLarens. We're trundling around the track in them. So interesting to see it on grooved Bridgestones, reminding me just how awful they looked, but they probably went reasonably well. And also how messy the car is. I mean, it, it's a glorious looking thing, but it's got pieces hanging off it left, right and centre. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I must confess, I, <coughs> I mean, you say glorious looking. I actually thought, thought that year, right, Bernie is right. We've got to get rid of all this rubbish. It's not a good-looking car, but it is just... You look oh, at it and the... the, the, the a potent-looking thing, for it, sure. It's just a channel of air, mm. uh, basically, that, that sort of marginally resembles a, a, a Formula One car. Um, you, you mentioned the Bridgestone tyres there, and uh, we will be talking about Pirelli today. We actually, before the podcast, we asked uh, for readers to send in some questions, and what the first one was, can we do two hours instead of one? I think <laughs> he's probably referring to the Pirelli. We, I mean, we've, we've just heard that Pirelli won't be making changes this year, because there were rumours of going back to the 2012 spec. That's been thrown out by the FIA. Um, Martin, you were quite vocal on the Sky website saying it's, it's gone too far. I take it you're still very much for that. Yes, I have. I, I'm fundamentally in favour of what Pirelli are doing, and, and I, I applaud them because I think what they've, they've spiced up the action. It's just gone too far, and I, I, it, I think it's confusing for the fans. It's confusing for everybody when the, the cars are spending more time in the pit lane than the pit straight on occasions, and 80 stops... Uh, or such like and drivers radioing in going I can't go any slower and shall I just let this guy pass and it's gone too far I, I do I do think we should have two or three stops in a race would be optimum for me and I'd, I'd like it to be 
just on the cusp of two or three, shall we say. So it's, so you've got a bit of, uh, of the unknown, a bit of excitement towards the end of the race. And clearly for me, that means that one tire that's really not very good at all and another that's reasonably consistent and, and works. But it, we've got drivers now starting on a Friday morning thinking only about saving tires, setting their cars up. And I saw a lot of comments in the week about, well, you know, races were won with four stops before, so what's the difference? Well, there's a huge difference because they were won with some kind of Banzai 20 lapper at qualifying pace, having to overtake other cars without assistance, i.e. Um, the DRS or Kurs or what have you. So uh, I, I, I think we did need some spice. You've got to think back to Fernando Alonso following Petrov and losing the 2010 World Championship and, and many other instances. And I, you know, I go back to the early 2000s when we knew not only which team was going to win the race, it was which car. And the championship was over by, by August. We'd be, have an ad break at ITV and me and Murray would look at each other and shrug our shoulders as much as say, what are we going to say now when we come back on air from the, from the ad break? And back in those days, we used to have to talk to uh, the rest of the world as well in between and make something up. And so I, th I think we, we did need something, but uh, I really think that Pirelli 2013 is too far. I mean, perspectives change, don't they? And I'm, I'm sure that the presence of TV is fundamental to that but people talk about the Schumacher Ferrari era in the early 2000s as being a little bit dull and predict predictable pedestrian etc you go back to the 1963 for example Jim Clark used to win most races by a fortnight if the Lotus didn't fall apart and we talk then only of artistry and elegance and innovation nobody says that was boring but the, I mean the, but the actual outcomes are pretty similar but was that not the die-hard F1 fan and what Formula One now? Well, that's what is, I'm saying. I think with yeah. the it presence of TV business. now, it's it, become a more sort it, of it, entertainment it, it, it thing. It was. I think the only point I'd make on that, because I mean, I, I was, you know, um, going to Formula One races in those days when I was well, still a kid, but I was, I was there. Um, and I think uh, it's funny. I mean, I, I saw that the famous picture of Chris Amon at at Alton Park at the at the at Old Hall Corner in the Ferrari the other day, which is a famous picture, been used loads and loads of times. And I was at Old Hall that day, and that was how he was taking that corner every lap when he was chasing Stewart, you know, in a full-blooded opposite lock power slide. And that was to drive cross-ply tyres, you know, in that car, that was the quickest way to drive it. Uh, and I think there's an element of, I mean, I could stand and watch that all day long. You didn't need constant overtaking when you had that spectacle. And I think, I'm sad to say, but I'm afraid a lot of this sort of spectacle has been lost in the sense that the cars are so efficient now that you quite wrongly, but you do sometimes get the impression if I could hold on to it, I could probably do that. Of course you couldn't, but when you saw a car sideways at 150 miles an hour, you know, you knew that instant you couldn't do that. Well, I mean, Martin, you drove, was it Ferrari last year, Fiorano? Mm -hmm. um, how, you know, compared to the cars that you were driving, it was obviously a different breed. But it was brutal, but it, you, know, you spend your life as a racing driver coming in at the end of every day and, and hours on end with maps and understeer one in and oversteer two in the middle and and talking to your engineer and worrying about your spring rates your anti-roll bars your dampers your bumpy rebound your ride heights and you, you're looking for perfection all the time and fast forward a few years and you jump in a car like the 2010 Ferrari and next week I'm in the 2011 Red Bull the one with the the fully blown floor under tray and which I think will be an immense thing to drive 
and they are just brilliant. They do all the things you ever wanted a racing car to do, and and they're brutal. I, I actually had to, because I was talking in, into microphones in my crash helmet, and I had a camera strapped to my chest. I couldn't breathe properly. I was pushing that Ferrari around Fiorano. I had to get off the throttle. I, I couldn't get any air in. I was drowning. I couldn't get any air <laughs> in my body. Uh, they are physically so demanding, but we, we can't. You know, we change the fact that we have aerodynamics, we have slick tires, oh, we no, have no. carbon brakes, and and you know, I I don't really look through rose tinted glasses even to the eighties because you could cruise home in sixth place in my day in the eighties with turbos two laps behind. Now you're lucky if you can be twelfth if you're a few seconds off the pace, as it were, or you had a, a slight glitch in a pit stop or something. So the, the game has changed, and I think we have to change with it. And Simon touched on it about the media and, and what the young people expect today. And we're losing young people. They're not watching Formula One. We have to give them some interest, some excitement, and we have to... Yeah, really, the aficionados will sit and wait and enjoy uh, a Hacken in passing Schumacher moment at... Uh, up at Lecom in Spa that day, as we all do, we can all picture that in our mind, and th th that magnificent, you know, goal or move at chess or whatever. But the the vast majority of people, they've got too many things to go and do. Uh, they they won't sit and wait for that moment and savor it. Yeah, I mean, uh, Paul Hemring and I spoke to him in Bahrain. Said there are thousands of TV channels. If Formula One doesn't get it right, then someone else will. I mean, okay, here's a question: you. I think we all agree that the Predi tyres is, you know, is, is a necessity because of you know, the viewing figures. But if you were given, you've been to nearly 500 Grand Prix yep. as a driver, commentator, pundit. The and regulations are in your hands. Where do you go with them? How, how do we solve it rather than using tyres that only last a few laps? Well, I, I think some of the tools we're using, and I, and I have this conversation with Nigel over lunch, normally with the help of a bottle of Amaroni or something where we, we get, it gets quite feisty, but <laughs> you, 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 you have to have something, otherwise the cars, we know, you know, if you spend all weekend sorting out who's the fastest and who's the slowest and line them up in that order and then have tyres that will not degrade, Where's the surprise when that's the order they finish in and nobody wants to watch that that's boring You know, we we had people complaining about it being boring now. We have to be very careful with social media these days because uh, You know you get a, a small sample of what people are, you know The most vociferous people are thinking but when you start looking at ticket sales and grant, you know grandstands and you're looking at TV numbers and all that people vote with their remote control and their feet Basically, if they don't, if they're not finding it interesting, so what would I do? I, I think fundamentally what we've got is not bad. I think the qualifying format is good, um, fundamentally and generally. Uh, I'm, I'm not against DRS, providing it's a device which at least gives you a chance to overtake, because I quite like if a driver's had a problem, I quite like him to be able to come back through the pack now and rejoin, as it were, and and, and instead of being stuck behind a car and a driver combination that is not competitive, yet they can't pass them. Um, Kurs is, is here to stay, isn't it, because of the, the eco aspects, the green aspects of it. So I think the ingredients we've got are, are about right. They're just, they're just too extreme. Do you think, Martin, one thing Ross said when I was talking to him not long ago, he just said, I think what I definitely think is we don't need these tyres and DRS. 
I think that's probably correct. Although there'll be tracks we go to where you know the, the DRS works brilliantly. In other words, it puts the driver alongside and skills. You've got to finish it off with skill, um, not watching a world champion who you hugely respect sitting there uh, with a driver you don't respect as much cruising past him like he's a new boy. That that feels wrong, doesn't it? And it feels plastic and fake and not interesting it's like doubling the size of a goal of the goalpost isn't it and and having a football mat you know chelsea v man u that ends up 15 12 or something it, it loses its impact yeah. i mean nigel you've always used the example of weber overtaking alonso uh through Eau rouge which was just the pass of the season but then a lap later it was all undone because of drs but then pat simmons argues that well if that driver just been overtaken by drs was fast enough he could do the same the next lap well, yeah, that's true. I mean, that pass at Del Rouge is one of those things. I don't know about you, but every time I see it, I still can't believe it's going to come off. You know, no, with both I was heading out the back of the commentary box. I was heading out the back of the commentary box. I thought it was yeah. going to be an aeroplane crash. And it, I thought it was interesting that Mark said to me the only people he would have in the in the paddock he would have tried that with were um, Fernando and Jensen. Hmm. Which is an interesting comment. Yeah, but we can't. I don't think we can. Sorry, sorry I don't think we can microanalyze every single point that happens in a Grand Prix and go, "See there, look, that that proves my point." Or that or you, you, we can all find little bits and pieces that prove our point irrefutably. You've got to look at the the bigger picture and whether uh, you know. Not every race can be an all-time classic, can it? It just can't. No, it, it can't, but sorry, Simon, I'm sorry, forgive me. <laughs> I'll get, a, I'll get, just, I'll get just, a word in sooner or later, so you two carry point on. point I just wanted to make, <laughs> I don't think they are as much faster than GP2 cars as they should be. The cars? Yeah, in the race. I just don't. No, I think there should be a vast difference, and, and it's getting, it's much, yeah. much less than it was. The drivers are not pushing flat out at any point in the race. Uh, at any point, pretty much from Saturday morning onwards, they're just nursing. They're nursing everything, and they're thinking the long game. Still, the best drivers are winning the races and winning the championships. Of that, there is no doubt. But is it interesting for us to observe how they're how they're doing it? Do we want to? You know, we get a lot more of this radio transmission as well that we never used to get. So, and uh, you know, whether somebody's being quite uh, how they're choosing which pieces of radio come across. You know, we we get a very small percentage of the total radio called stuff so um do, do we know who chooses the the radio messages that come over the is he very pro prelly or anti prelly because it, it would seem he's quite anti prelly isn't he i think they just they just go for, i mean I've, I've i've sat in the fom tv compound during the grand prix in australia 2012 and um i mean as martin said i mean there's an awful lot of stuff that you hear through the head cans which is very amusing, but it's not going to make broad, broadcastable for TV. Who who actually decides, you know, which bits do get filtered through? I don't know, but you hear voices saying, "Right, I've got a bit of commentary about Alonso talking about, you know, understeer through turn three or something." Do you want that? And then the director says either yay or nay. But just, I mean, the, something you said earlier about the, the qualifying format being essentially, you know, okay. Do you not miss the time when we, you know, you had four sets of tyres for an hour? And it would build up drivers getting faster, pushing harder and harder on each set. And you'd get this fantastic 10-minute burst at the end where everyone would go out and people would trip over each other and someone would find a clear bit of track. And you get a fantastic kind of climax to the whole thing. Whereas now, you have four or five people going out to do one run and three or four cars in a garage. It's not quite the same, is it? 
It, it's not, but I guess with my television head, I'm, I'm thinking of the whole hour because there's action for the, pretty much the whole hour, most of the time anyway. In the, we, we've got certain cut-off points where it gets quite exciting. Who's going to make it through? That, that sort of knockout facility. Yeah, we did used to get that last lap, last two or three minutes of frantic action. But I, I think overall, it, it, it fundamentally works as a qualifying show. And, and the audiences back that up get really good audiences for the qualifying they, they like the excitement of it it doesn't work when q3 is is actually an anti-climax um of course we used to have the friday and saturday qualifying but if it rained on saturday or the track was dirty nobody nobody i remember standing with murray and we were well over half an hour before we saw a car on the racetrack it's it's like I, I keep using the analogy but it's like watching an fa cup final and they blow the whistle to start the match and nobody kicks the ball for half an hour what would you do you'd laugh and turn over, wouldn't you, after 10 minutes? Because you wouldn't believe it's credible that this is going on. It happens in cycling when they sit on the bank and looking at each other for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> now, we, uh, we've got masses of questions in from readers. Um, and you've, you just mentioned Murray Walker. I remember there's a question here from Steve Hobbs. I, I think I know the answer to this. My question for Martin, who has been your favorite commentator to work alongside and why? Well, I've enjoyed them all. Um, Obviously, I'd have to say Murray because I learned so much from him and I, I spend longer with Murray than with anybody else. And it was the early days for me. So uh, whilst I didn't actually want to go in the commentary box, I wanted to be a Formula One driver. Once I got in there and I realised I quite enjoyed it, then it was fine. And, and Murray was magnanimous. We enjoyed working together. He was very helpful, very fair with me. And I learned a great deal from him. And, and it was a, the Murray and Martin brand. I wish it had carried on a little bit longer, actually. But then, you know, James, different character altogether. Uh, I remember James being told, don't be the guy that replaces Murray Walker, be the guy that replaces the guy who replaced Murray Walker. But James went for it, uh, and all credit to him. Um, then, we, then we obviously had the move uh, to BBC and Jonathan. BBC decided to change Jonathan. I tried it for a year, learned a lot, quite enjoyed it, but I enjoy my current role more. I had a year with my mate DC up there. We had a good laugh. Now with Crofty, and uh, he's he's got a different style, but it, it's it's an interesting style. He's got he's got a turn of phrase, and he's got and uh, it, it suits it suits what we're doing. And I can go back now to thinking more about strategy and whether the tyres are going to make twenty two miles or twenty four miles, and uh, and go from there. Did you were you not pulled into a commentary box for the first time because a certain James Hunt had gone missing? Absolutely, 1989 I think it was, or 91, my Brabham broke down and they were looking for anybody that could remotely speak English or even Norfolk really. Was that Spa? Yeah, Spa. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't remember, I know I was driving a Brabham so I don't know if it was 89 or 91, I suspect 91. And they would look, anybody who could go up and help Murray out, we did. James was on the missing list wasn't he? And uh, he was, <laughs> uh, it was quite good fun. Uh, and I made my excuses to leave. And I remember Nick Britton, who was helping me out at the time, was like, going, why did you leave? Well, it sounded so good. Why did you go? I'm like, I want to beat the traffic out of the place. <laughs> traffic <laughs> was horrific, wasn't it, back then? And I'm disappointed, uh, you know, the car's broken down. And then again in 95, when I had half a Ligier drive, and I used to do Eurosport on the Saturday and BBC on the Sunday, uh, just because I had nothing better to do, really. Now, we've got to look, look ahead to Monaco. Is it going to be Mercedes putting their cars on pole and then blocking everyone up during the race, or is that really going to, going to happen? I think it's such an unusual racetrack. It's such a one-off that 
I, I kind of hate guessing. I love to go and watch and observe and enjoy rather than second guessing because it's all it is. I, I'm about data and understanding and explanation. I don't like just pulling something out of it. It does seem that the, Macla that the Mercedes is, is good on a fresh set of tyres, but Monaco's, you just rewrite the rules there. And it, the driver can make the difference. In Barcelona, I think you're pretty stuck with your, your, the efficiency of your aero package. In Monaco, you can outperform your car. And I, I expect to see that happening uh, all, all the way down through the field. And I'm really looking forward to that. It's, it's, for me, walking around the, the track in Monaco on the Friday or Saturday is the highlight of the year, uh, of my commentating year. Uh, yes, maybe the Merc will be really good on a, on a fresh set of tyres. Will it hold people up in the race? If, they, if it's hurting its tyres, they'll still get past it in, in the pit stop phases or, or what have you. So I think the usual suspects will be at the front and, and the usual drivers in those cars. And, and I'm looking forward to it. Michael did actually have the fastest time, didn't I? I know he didn't start from pole, because I can't remember what penalty, why he got a penalty, but, but he did actually set the fastest penalty. Yes, he did. He, did. he, was, race, he was taking Bruno Senna out in Barcelona. That's right. Yeah. 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 No, yeah, I mean, he was, he, was, he, was, he was quickest, yeah. Absolutely. So, and the Red Bull's got a great front end on it as well, watching it out at Barcelona, which, which you need a good front end on a car in Monaco. Uh, you spend so long on slow apexes going nowhere that if you if you can just get the front end to stick, then you just light up the lap. Nigel, with news in this morning that Paddy Lowe is going to Mercedes June third, is that team? I mean, we thought it was top heavy before Paddy Lowe went there, but now there's, I actually saw quite a good photo on Twitter this morning of someone did a mock up of what Mercedes pit wall would look like, and there was like a double decker bus <laughs> with ten people on it. Yeah, I, I don't know. Actually, Martin, you had just been at McLaren's this morning. I don't know if you heard anything about it. I, I was actually, I thought, how charitable of Martin Whitmarsh to... Presumably they could have said, no, no, you're not going anywhere until the end of the year. So You don't think there have been any cut price Mercedes engine deals going on there? Well, it's possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there is only one year left and they don't want to pay more than they have. That's, they have to. That's perfectly true. I'd be surprised if Martin's just capitulated and let him go out of the goodness <laughs> for, of his For nothing, heart. yeah. Uh, the, there's not some kind of quid pro quo going with that as well, but it's Martin's like that though. He's, <laughs> you know, Martin. He, I was to say he's a softy, but he's not a softy. He's he's a compassionate man, and he he if the deal's done, he he wouldn't. He's not bitter and twisted about that sort of thing. Um, but I'm sure he gained some kind of upside. I mean, it, it, they've got to really. They've got one year of Mercedes Benz, and and I know they've. they've contracted to have the the latest technology and the latest software and what have you but I still can't I, you know if I was if I was going to war I'd want Ross Braun on my side I wouldn't want him on the other side when it came to strategically uh, being being helpful to you so I, I, I just think McLaren need to do all they can to make sure they got they got the best of what Mercedes will give them next year before they move to Honda and what about the other half of the question about Mercedes being top heavy well, it seems to me I mean, I don't know, the impression I always have is it seems mighty top-heavy to me now. It did, didn't it? So presumably one or two will be going. They're Clearly they've got the 2013 car and the 2014 car. Um, they're throwing a lot of money at it. It looks quite confusing. I agree with you, it already looked a bit top-heavy. It's only a matter of time before Ross decides he's, he's ready to retire. Sooner than later, Ross is a good friend of mine. And, and I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to give away any uh, confidentiality because Ross wouldn't tell you that sort of thing anyway. But 
he, 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 I think with Ross, it's a question of he'll go when he's ready, not when somebody else decides he's ready. And I think they've realised, uh, despite all the banter of the winter uh, and, and and chest puffing, that day by day, minute by minute, so they need somebody there like Ross Braun steering the ship. There was something that really struck me in Malaysia, actually, right after the um, multi-21 scenario. Um, Ross's voice when he was dealing with Nico, when Nico was saying, please, you know, he wasn't sort of being like Sebastian and saying, oh, get him out of the way, but he was saying, please, I'm faster, can I go? And Ross was so implacable, wasn't he? Firm, implacable. And I just thought, yeah, that tone of voice, you would instantly yeah. say, okay, I obey you. Yeah, That's Ross carries do. that kind of heavyweight sort of uh, position, really. You, you're not... You, you're not going to well. I'll do it, and I'll fight with Ross later. You, 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 you're going to follow that one, and and that's how he, that's how he operates. And you, you take the upside of that as well. That, that yeah. as, as one of his drivers, as I was at Jaguar, that confidence that he has and that authority helps you in other ways. So it, it's not smart to, to be dismissive of it. No, and the thing with Ross, I mean, is is just such a weight of achievement behind him, isn't he? You know, you hear that voice, and and it sort of half automatically triggers in your head what the man has done. And Christ, it worked pretty well for many, many, many years, didn't it? Yes, yeah, so it, it I'm not going to go against it now. It damages the drivers, doesn't it? it, it DC never recovered from the '98 Mika Melbourne situation uh, in some respects, um, in terms of his uh, credentials, as his words, credibility. Uh, and I think it's really hard for the drivers because it may, it does make them look submissive makes them look weak but you you know that i mean i did a feature with uh, for sky f1 with nico rosberg that we put out last uh, last weekend in barcelona and we about the steering wheel it was absolutely fascinating we had to cut loads out to get it under five minutes now five minutes on tv is a long time for a feature and there's a lot of information in it. And the drivers, there's so much going on in the cockpit, and they know that others are managing tyre strategy, fuel strategy, and, and all of the things. So you must, if you're a sensible driver, you must think they know a lot of things that I don't know. I've been busy driving this car for an hour and a half now. But it, it is very negative for the driver, and it, and it, it makes them look weak. And yeah, Well, it's interesting. What do, you, what do you think about Vettel, what he did? Does it, do you think that makes him look strong if it can make you look weak to be submissive? I'd, I thought it was interesting that he, he was very apologetic after the race but he then went away and came back in China and was completely unapologetic about it and said you know what if I was in the same position again I'd, I'd probably do the same which I thought was at least honest but interesting that he went away and you know clearly realised he didn't care. I think I said it in a previous podcast it's it's just a this the ruthless ambition that um, attaches to, you know, Alonso sometimes when he, you know, he passed Massa coming into the pits in Valencia that time, to Schumacher always, you know, the, some drivers have that that edge about them. Senna had it, as you know. But it, but, but if um, if Vettel wins the championship by a few points, everybody will have forgotten uh, about the negativity of, of Malaysia. I suppose so, but I mean, actually, a deliberate disobeying of a team order. I mean, Simon's perfectly right about that moment where Fernando passed Felipe in, in the pit lane. Well, Chaco was terrific, incidentally. I yeah, yeah, but I, th I thought, well, that's the difference essentially yes. between the two. Absolutely. But on the other hand, actually to disobey a firm team order, um, I think you really are calling into question where, where the authority in the team lies, aren't you? But, but every racing driver, every professional racing driver after Malaysia 
and I had this discussion with my son actually, would have thought, would I have done a Rosberg or would I have done a Vettel? What would have been the right thing to do? And if I was, if I was advising a young driver, I'd have done a Vettel and sorted it out later. Yeah, maybe. But in that case, don't sign up to the team orders in the first place. Yeah. That's my, that's my grievance with Vettel. If Vettel, when this whole multi-21, multi-12 thing was, was discussed, and it must have been at some point, that was when he should have said, I'm sorry, I don't, I'm not interested in any of that. Mm. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm going for it, and that's the end of it. So you, you know, now you all know where you stand, and that was the thing. I mean, I'm sure initially Mark did think, Christ, what's going on? I do think Sebastian must remember that you, 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 I thought Jacques Villeneuve summed it up better than anybody else afterwards. You, you've got to win with honour. And you can, he can still win lots of championships, lots of races, mm. without that negativity mm. surrounding him. But, I mean, did Senna always win with honour? Did Schumacher always win with honour? They have millions of fans around the world, don't they? It's, it's funny how it, <coughs> it pans out. You know, there's obviously a line, and uh, for some... Vettel didn't cross it. He was—he's just the you know the exciting kid, as it were. If you want to be considered one of the all-time greats, I think you have to be able to win and then win with honour as well. If you, it is, yeah. Is there a, is there such thing as honour in sport anymore? See, I, I couldn't understand Berger's point when he was talking about Vettel, and he just said, no, 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 you can't criticise him because you know that's not how his brain works. And Senna was the same. And I thought, well, <laughs> you know, where do you draw the line of this? Any, yeah. any behaviour is forgivable. Is, yeah. You know, if, well, he's, not, he's, he's a bit odd, you know, he's not quite normal. So you, can't, you must expect this sort of behaviour. Mm. I just thought that's ridiculous. You know, Senna did what he did because he chose to do it. And, and Vettel the same. But Vettel, I think, did damage the team in Malaysia by... He, he weakened the team. He, he looked, it made it clear that he was, effect, he was the de facto team principal. He was in, he's in charge of the place. And you do think to yourself, don't you, does, does Mark lie awake at night sort of dreaming of Interlagos and giving Sebastian a chop and letting Fernando through? But I thought Mark <laughs> wasn't very smart in Interlagos. I know, I know, th th but there's so much history there. I think we, none of us know the full story. Because uh, I, I really, I remember saying at the time when I was commentating on Interlagos last year, I was surprised how brutal he was with, and, and in many respects, the way he chopped him into T1 is what put Seb on his back foot down there into T4 when he made a hash of turning in there and collecting Senna and, and all. It, it could have cost him the World Championship. But I'll tell you what, though, when you were saying earlier on, you know, about, about DC being damaged by what happened in, uh, in Adelaide... Melbourne. No, Melbourne, yeah. sorry. Yeah. It was two races um, in the trial, though, wasn't it? Because it, was, it, yeah, it happened And you've got to say, in the same way, does, does what happened to Silverstone with the, you know, with the front wings... Does that, is that always going to linger in Mark's mind? When it comes to it, he gets what he needs. I, I'm told that Mark tried that front wing and didn't like it, and that's why, they gave, that's why Sebastian had it. But now that's one side of the story. Mark, Mark's expression in the post-qualifying conference didn't suggest that uh, that tallied, really. No. Nor, did his no, reaction, I, well, nor did his reaction at Cops the following afternoon. Well, and <laughs> the other thing is, you'd have thought Christian would have managed, to, if had that been the case, he would have made a, a big thing yeah. of it at the time, wouldn't you? But where does this leave, Mark? Is is he going to does he going to sports cars next year as many people believe or will he will he just slug it out at Red Bull for another, for another year I would have thought it's untenable to stay at Red Bull for both Mark and Red Bull and Vettel I, I would have thought they need to change there now and Mark needs Mark needs to get out of there I think he's fast enough to still attract a very top line Formula 1 seat and I think it'd be a shame if he if he bails it to sports car I think if he does though he'll have five years of of Top dog at say Porsche and, and he loves Le Mans. 
despite, I think, his aerial activities there. Yeah, that was, what year was that? 99, yeah. Yeah, on three consecutive laps. The, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I agree, I, th I still think Mark is very underrated. I mean, people used to say when he was a Jaguar, oh, he's no good at racing. Well, the thing was, he'd put a shed on the front, or first or second row, and then because he could get the performance out of it over one. Like, well, it's no surprise that McLarens and Williams is a queuing up behind him in a race. But I, I, I think he's very underrated generally. I think he's a good racer. He's, I, think, I think he's fast enough. But if he did go to Porsche on a multi-year deal, to, for example, he then has the chance, you know, he becomes a Porsche ambassador and you know, for the rest, that sets him up for life, doesn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a, it would be a fantastic thing at, his, at this stage of his career to do, just in, in, the, in view, looking at the bigger picture. I agree. I love sports car racing, of course. It's, it's where I had the, the, the most success in my career. And I, I love going to watch it now with my son racing in the World Endurance Championship. So it, it's not a, there's no shame in becoming a lead driver in a works, fully work-supported team in the World Endurance Championship. With and you like can drive flat out <laughs> for you six can. hours or 24, yeah. which isn't necessarily the case and where it is, is at the moment. It is flat out. You watch, I went, I went to Spa and stood, stood beside the track, walked around the track for three hours. They are flat out for six hours. Yeah, I was at Silverstone and watching McNish in the last, the late laps, you know, chasing, mm. was it Trellier, wasn't it? In the app, yeah. And I thought, geez, i tell you what it reminded me of, actually. It reminded me of Austin last year, which I really, really enjoyed because that yeah. was Lewis absolutely yeah. dug yeah, in was and brilliant, wasn't going it? for it. And yeah, a one-stop racer, if yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah, it was, it was, a matter of fact, <laughs> yeah, but it was a hell of a good race, wasn't it? Yeah. It was two, two blokes absolutely on it. I mean, the, neither yeah. of them was giving an inch, and there was yeah. lap after lap, yeah. absolutely was, on the limit. It was pure determination by Lewis, because he's convinced that Vettel's overrated. Well, I think, and, and Fernando the same. I mean, they yeah. both rate each other the best, don't they? Yeah. He, uh, uh, I'm pretty, I haven't heard it from Lewis, but I'm pretty sure. Wouldn't you love to see Kimi in the, in the other Red Bull next year? Yeah, I would. I, I think would. we've now got, we always say that there's three, the real greats, there's three of them, don't we? I think you've got to add, that's, that's become four. In my view, now I think you've got to add Raikkonen. And, and the thing to is, Timmy wouldn't give a toss about Helmut Marco about anything, would he? <laughs> no. He doesn't he care he about anything, mate. <laughs> 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 but does he really want to leave Lotus? I mean, he seems so happy there. He's, he's getting the seems we've got the best out of Kimi, and you know, what, why would he go? He's got the PR. Well, I know for a fact that when he was driving for Ferrari, he used to really enjoy Red Bull's post-race parties on Sundays. <laughs> well, I can't there confirm is that. that. Yeah. There is that. I think he, if he could be in an environment where he didn't have to do too much PR and, and what have you, then it, you've got to look at, Lo if, you, if you were Kimmy, you've got to look at loads of things. They've lost Allison, James Allison. There's, you know, they didn't make payroll one month last year. There's, there's still always talk about, yeah, they're bringing new sponsors in. There's enough peril there that if you got offered a, a, another equally good, if not better, front-running seat that looked in a totally well-funded, well-structured team, especially with the new engines coming along, you, uh, you'd have to grab it if you were Kimi. What I find so interesting about Kimi's performance since he's come back from rallying is that before he left, when he was at Ferrari, his, you know, he'd have one good weekend, then one disaster, and he was so inconsistent. But the, big, the greatest thing this time is his consistency. I mean, he's, he's, he's never off the podium. It well, seems. I know, but as someone said, of course, he's on quite a lowly retainer now, but on a hell of a good dollars per point rate. <laughs> I think he is. I think he, I think he has a good incentive to finish the race, but it's working, isn't it? But I also think he realised he'd blown it before. He went off to, you know, the time you've dug car, a few cars out of the snow, hit a tree or two, and it's been muddy and cold, and all of a sudden Formula One must have looked magnificent when you've got your shovel out in the, in the I don't know, 
in the Swedish forest or something. You've you've been rallying, and was it Cosworth that you drove? And Toyota, yeah. Yeah. How how I mean, you sort of first hand experience. How how does a circuit driver start working and and rallying and and racing and rallying? It must be a, com- a complete nightmare, surely. Cause it you, is. You're suddenly relying on someone else. It's the hardest thing I've ever done behind the wheel of a of a racing machine by some margin, I would say. Yeah, the the course changes the the weather. You wreck it in the daylight, do it at night. Wreck it in the rain, do it in the snow. It, it, I don't know how they do it. I just think they're the they they have the greatest skill of any uh, racing driver in the world. I think the rally drivers. Yeah, it's that it's that utter belief that your co-driver is telling you the right thing to do. I suppose it must be a hard thing to get your head round. And well, it, it is. It uh, not only, only is he telling you to go flat out. He's telling you three corners in advance. So you're busy driving. You've got to drive the, those three corners and remember what he said about what comes up next because you've got to have the car set up. And it's just so immensely difficult to do, I have to say. It's so easy to make a mistake. I thought those remarks of Loeb's were interesting about um, saying that, in his opinion, as a rally driver, Kubica is on another planet compared with Kimi. But in fact, Anthony Davidson said he'd been talking to Sarazan about, uh, about Kimi's you know, what he'd heard about Kimmy's rally days. And he said, well, the problem was Kimmy never really had any interest in pace notes. Mm. Well, I mean, <laughs> you, 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 can't, you can't really do that, can you? If you it's, it's couldn't be bothered with them. Pace notes to a rally driver are like drafting yeah. to a NASCAR driver. It's just <laughs> a core part of, yeah. of what you're going to do. But I, I think without doubt, Kubica would be number five on our list of, uh, not fifth on the list, but of the, of the list of five, he'd be in there. Uh, no uh, question at all. I mean, he's... Uh, Lewis has always said that he was the toughest, fastest guy he came up against in the junior categories. And, I mean, look at 2010, uh, three proper driver's tracks, Suzuka, Spa, Monaco. He was, on the, he was on the front row at Monaco and the second row at the other two in a car that had no business being anywhere near there. Mm. Um, you know, he, he, places where he could make a difference, he did. McLaren, to run you sort of back to Formula One, what, what's going on with McLaren? They have... An incredible budget, incredible facilities. They have a good team. Okay, they've lost Paddy Lowe. What was it, 98, the last Constructors' Championship? And they've had Lewis as the driver, Alonso. Where's, you know, Martin, where's it, where's it going wrong? I, I, I don't... You walk around the place, I've been there just two hours ago, and, and you wonder how anybody could ever beat that team, as I did even in the old factory when I walked around it in 1994 when I joined them. And... They're a good bunch of people. And then I see a lot of faces around that I've known for 20, 30 years in, in that team. And they, it just seems impossible that they don't have, at all times, pretty much one of the fastest cars, if not the fastest car. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's the... They've got a system. They operate under a matrix system there of management. They... Um, there's, there's something doesn't quite click, isn't there, really? I, I admire them for having a go with their 2013 car, not just sitting on their laurels of what looked like a very good 2012 car. Although, of course, that might well prove to be a mistake. Although Williams and Sauber don't look, you know, have, they've lost ground as well, haven't they? Others have lost ground. Something's changed in 2013 that's called a lot of people out. And, you know, you have to look, you have to look at McLaren and say, if, if, if we say there's we think there's four creme de la creme drivers, three of them have passed through McLaren. And the best designer in the Formula One designer in the world has passed through McLaren. How, why didn't they stick? I think, for me, that's the question about McLaren. Why, why, why didn't those people want to stick there, stick there for their careers? It still surprises me, though, 
quite honestly, after the, what Ferrari went through last year, that for this last year of this formula, McLaren decided to, you know, to, to go radical, if you like, pull Rod Van Dan and everything else, um, knowing it was only for one season, and they had a very, very good car at the end of last yeah, year. It, it's I, odd, it, isn't it? Hindsight's a wonderful I, I, thing. I, I admire it, but... It, I it didn't make sense now, and you wonder how it made sense then. Is what you're saying, and I agree with yeah. you. I'm sure Martin Whitmarsh could probably pinpoint the meeting when they decided to go as a radically different car this year, because I'm sure he thinks back to it occasionally. <laughs> he must do. Yeah, um, they didn't need to take a gamble, did they? But then, you know, it, it's very easy to sit around this table overlooking the Thames as we are and knocking it about like a football before we move on to the next point. You know, they, those, they, those decisions would have been taken at McLaren based on a lot of data, a lot of R&D, a lot of clever people saying we, we, can, we can improve this and, and whether we're wrong. It, it's true, but still this, this year, of, of, you know, above just about any other, you know that every team is sort of half thinking of the year, yeah. year hence much more than, you know, yeah. than usual. Yes, I come back to my point. Uh, it it d doesn't look a good decision now, and you, wondered, you wonder how it did back then, but it clearly did somebody. But it's, it's just the sports essence, isn't it? People always striving to find, you know, a fractional gain here, there, or anywhere. More it's than ever, isn't it? Yeah, but now, it's, now it's with just the absolutely the essence of the sport. It is, and, and you have to admire them for it. Um, but there, there's something wrong in the decision-making process. They, they, they turn up with too many cars that they need to spend the first half season getting sorted out. Now, whether it's correlation... So I, I, what I don't understand is if your wind tunnel and your virtual wind tunnel, you, uh, you know, you see already, and, and your, the track and the stopwatch and the driver, if they correlate towards the end of 2012, why do they not correlate in 2013? So how can, how can they start deviating? It seems odd to me. I'm sure in 20 years we'll look back and everyone will say that how weird it was when we, didn't, we couldn't work these things out, <laughs> as they always do. The, uh, take some more questions. We've got one from CJ Ogard, I think that is. Have the 2013 F1 rookies disappointed so far this year? I certainly don't think Bianchi's disappointed, and Bottas is in a car that doesn't really allow him to look good. No, the Williams has not been good, has it, unfortunately? Uh, Bottas looks like he's sort of a match for Maldonado, doesn't he, roughly yeah. speaking? I think Chilton's got on terms with Bianchi to an, to an extent. Now, um, Gutierrez looks a bit out of his depth, although he... He led a race, for goodness sake, in Barcelona. And got so the fastest lap, didn't he? And got the fastest lap. Start sort of a commentary on the state of things. Started 19th, finished 11th, and got fastest lap and led the race. Hmm. I presume fastest lap because he put a new set of rubber on about four laps in the end or something, something like, like that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I don't think they've really shone. Bianchi in the early stages, I think, was outperforming his car, just as we saw Weber do in a Minardi and, and Alonso do in a Minardi. So... Let, let's see how good, but you know, Chilton definitely coming back at him. Yeah. Well, uh, we mentioned it just there, Adrian Lee, what has gone wrong with Williams in the last few seasons? We've, we've talked about McLaren, we don't want to keep talking about teams that it's not, not working out for at the moment, but Williams, the Spanish Grand Prix was the perfect example. This year, didn't make it out of Q3, a Q1, and last year, won the race. So, I mean... I know, it's, I don't know, I think we all wish Williams could get back on the pace, don't we? And uh, especially with the things that you know that happened to the Williams family in recent times and I, I, I don't know it, it's it's worrying there because it, it's a spiral isn't it you don't get the sponsors because you're not getting the success so you lose key people you can't invest in the R&D and it, it's a vicious circle and I fear Williams are you know, deeply into that vicious circle at the moment. Yeah. I mean it's a tough job for, for Claire to step into. 
a very tough job. And I know they tried quite well. I believe they were trying to get James Allison there, which would have been quite a coup. Uh, and they're they're trying to get put some key people back into the place. And the spirit must be very. I haven't been to Williams for for a while, so I, I don't know. And again, I would think it'd be like McLaren. You'll go around there and there'd be some really top guys and girls who um, who know which way's up when it comes to making and, and running a Formula One car. But it's uh, it's missing some key ingredients. Do we know where James Allison's going yet? Has that been announced? Ferrari, isn't it? I assume he's going, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Ferrari. Montezuma was very outspoken in saying that there was absolutely no deal done, but that was two weeks ago. But so. he was there, what, five years was he before, Simon? Was it five yeah, years? Yeah, it was four five years. Yeah. Certainly people I know who usually know these things uh, in the paddock, they, they, they're pretty categoric that he's going to Ferrari. Find out. Well, while we're on Ferrari, Massa, he's an amazing turnaround. And if I get this, if I'm right, it was more mostly psychological last year when he just could not match Alonso. And he did go and talk to someone about that, but it's a revolutionary change, the mass of this year to mass of the beginning of last year, isn't it? Yeah, confidence is everything, isn't it, in sport? It doesn't matter whether you're swinging a golf club or you're taking a penalty in the, the final penalty of a shootout in a big competition or you're on the grid in Monaco in a Formula One car. You have to be confident. And if you haven't got that, every you're tight in the car, every little time every little thing the car does you overreact to and uh, there's no doubt about it also if say a particular car its balance its characteristics the the, the grip the, the the way the tires work if it all starts suiting your driving style you might want to take a lot of speed you might be a late break or you might want to take a lot of speed into the apex and sort it out or slow in quick out whatever you however you happen to like to drive if suddenly the car works with that you go from zero to hero in a, in a hurry and I, but i do think it's a, a confidence thing with him as well um, <clears throat> wonder, winding it back a bit to Le Mans last year. Last year you signed for Sky, mm. uh, went to every single Grand Prix, yeah. and also raced at Le Mans. I mean, how <laughs> and Silverstone <laughs> and yep. Silverstone. I mean, and Goodwood. You, you, oh, yes, of course, and Goodwood. Are you enjoying life now more than you did as an F1 driver, or is is it? Did, do you still miss sort of the F1 grid, as it were? Uh, I loved Le Mans last year, sharing with my son, and, and I enjoyed Silverstone even more because I, I really felt dialed in. Our car wasn't really quick at Le Mans. The Zytec didn't suit, suit the long straights, but it did very much suit Silverstone. Um, the competitive juices will not give up, unfortunately. <laughs> I, can't, I cannot get rid of them. You um, did enjoy the Porsche curves, though, didn't you? Yes, you I did. And, and I loved Daytona in 2011 as well. I mean, that was another race. I do not remember one lap in, in Daytona 24 hours where I wasn't f as fast as I could possibly go. Um, th those races are extraordinary. But um, I, I think, but there's no pressure, is there? Because you're, you're not driving for a career. You haven't actually got to impress anybody except for yourself when you're out there so you're doing it for the love of it rather than you know has he spotted me will I be able to get this new contract you know did I see them talking to somebody else and, and all of that so you get this you get the so I can operate at almost a professional level without the pressures professional pre uh, pressure if you like so but I, I miss being an F1 driver I'd still love to be doing that and and I will have a big smile on my face I mean even just driving the F3 car the other day my old F3 car you know, I love driving that as well so that that um, that's w I, I still see myself as a racing driver who does TV rather than a TV person mm. and do you still I mean do you still find it 
easy to get on the pace straight away or is you know is that something that's that's become tougher over the years i think i'm technically a better driver now than i was because i've learned so much things i didn't i used to do instinctively that i now have watched over the years working with dc or gary paffitt or watching with my son or things i've read about breaking profiles and how you turn into a corner and i didn't know any of that before i just used to do it and it felt right and the stopwatch confirmed it or it didn't and you w then we start to get some data acquisition and what have you. So I think technically I drive better now than I, than I did then because I've, I've learned so much since I stopped. Actually, Martin, that interests me in terms of you say, you know, I just did it. And the, according to the lap times, I was, I was doing it right. And it's interesting that having done it like that for a long, long time, there are still things that may not have come completely naturally to you, but which actually, you know, which work better. They could have been, and, yeah. And surprise I mean, you. I mean, have you really learned... About a lot about driving. Well, I uh, recently, fairly recently. Yes, in the last few years, I have because I I, I would um, approach a braking zone now in a much more technical way than I did before. I used to brake when it instinctively felt right, jockey the thing down through the gearbox by blipping the throttle and hoping the rear wheels didn't lock up, carry as much speed as I instinctively thought I could get away with to the apex but but now if you break three meters too early somebody's telling you and telling you exactly with a piece of graph paper how much time it's cost you you have to be you know I, I think that the drivers they don't have to worry anymore about the setup of the car and and, and understanding it they, they don't have to shift gear there's a lot of things they don't have to do anymore that the whereas a driver before you were a fundamental you were a key part in the development of your car now it's done by computers and simulators and you turn up at the racetrack and your car is fundamentally set up for you it's just fine fine tuning i think their skills are in a different place now and that is in an accuracy that we never used to never used to have how often do you see drivers making big errors and flying off the road anymore you don't do that they're, they're brilliantly reliable and consistent i'd say i, was gonna say, I mean back in when you were sort of on your career stepladder you presumably olden park or something right you break third tree on the left now when you were racing at le mans and silverstone last year do you find that as you're approaching breaking then you've got a telemetry graph in your mind or are you still using physical reference points no you're using physical reference points but you know how hard i'm going to hit the pedal in the early phase of the braking and then release the pressure and then maybe put a little bit more pressure on I mean, it's far more complex in an f1 car because the bias is moving through the braking zone as well so yeah i do i approached uh, I approach the corners differently, but more in a more mechanical fashion than I used to. But you said, did I have a problem getting up to speed? Fundamentally, I still have roughly the same pace I, I think I had before. Where I, find, where I found it difficult was, for example, when we went to the first test in um, Paul Ricard, Scene was at, uh, on the long straight, the, the also Senior was flat out in top gear and it took me quarter of an hour to build up to that <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and fair enough <laughs> well and I, and I can't pretend I ever felt I think us three would still be going round <laughs> I can't pretend I felt super comfortable cops cops in the Zytec was flat in top as well and that took me a little while to build, build up to that it's just just believing the things will stick and all of a sudden the barriers as you get older the barriers do look closer there's no doubt about it I mean when I look if you look on YouTube at my my crash in Tabak in the Tyrol yeah or the or or my crash in in Imola when the when when the brake pads fell out down the pit straight and that sort of thing it's like you know and then uh, why did we get in them why did we even get in the cars let alone leave the pits I can remember that the Tyrol coming past me on its side yeah 
uh, cockpit towards me, towards the, towards the fence, and your helmet scudding along the tarmac. Was he talking at the time? He wasn't. No, no. He, he, he then went back and tried to have a conversation with Ken about where he was and which circuit he was at. Yeah, and they stopped uh, me going out yeah, in the spare but car. That, that was Jesus. You know, but you got into the spare car, didn't you? I got in the spare but, car, but yes. then asked where you were. And it, they fired it up, and I couldn't remember where to go when I got to the end of pit lane. <laughs> <laughs> so they stopped. But if you if you watch when they push that, it's on, it's on YouTube. If they when they push the car, the marshals just slam it back onto oh, his yeah, yeah. under tray because yeah, it's got yeah, no wheels on yeah. at this point. And my head, because oh, I'm out for the count, and my arms hanging out the side of the thing. Uh, miracle. It's, if you go to a motorcycle racing paddock, I mean, almost everybody has a limp. If you, it's, it's conspicuous in the contemporary F1 paddock that most 80s F1 drivers, yourself, Jacques Lafitte, Mark Sura, yeah, Johnny Herbert. Johnny Herbert, yeah. yeah, you see, all, you're, you're all hobbling along. Yeah, well, because we used to be sat at the front, didn't we, to counterbalance away to the engine, and... And so we were one of the early things to meet the barrier. I, I think the most inexplicable thing I've ever seen at a racetrack was at Vegas, and Tombe was had a huge accident. I think it was in practice, and essentially the front of the car was gone. You know, from the forward of the cockpit, just nothing. Mm. And Patrick literally just stood up and walked out of the front <laughs> of it. And I've never understood how that could. No. How could that have happened? The front of the car wiped off, and his legs and feet. Why? Well, I mean, okay. I was reading up Ready for Monaco, and it, it, it was the first 19 years they raced. There were no barriers, were there? No. no, no. Until 69, they didn't have barriers. No, I, I remember Rodriguez having an accident out of, um, let me think, uh, Mirabeau. The, um, there were some photographers coming out of that corner. It was just the curb, and there was no barrier at all. There was the curb and then the wall. And there were photographers taking pictures, standing on the outside, you know, people coming out of... Uh, and these two guys, I remember, had a huge camera bag between them, and, and they lugged it. They picked it up and lugged it down towards the hairpin. And truly, within not more than a minute, Pedro flew off the road coming out of uh, Mirabeau and slammed into the wall exactly where they'd been. Wow. But what are we missing and, and now? And nobody, nobody moved. I mean, nobody sort of thought, God, that was close, you know. Everybody said, oh, but, but it's somebody, all right. Somebody will look back at this, this era and go, I can't believe they used to do that. Oh, because no, you're absolutely we, right. We can't believe they used to race without seatbelts, yeah. without no. roll bars, no. without, you know, all the things, proper crash helmets, barriers, and all, and all of it. You know, now I can't believe we used to race without hands devices or crash structures or, or fuel cells that didn't burst every time you hit something. Presumably, in 20 years' time, somebody will look back at, at the lunacy of what we do now, will they? But I mean, the yes, uh, I'm sure they will. MotoGP is still the same. Cropslow finishing on the podium this Mm. This last weekend with a fractured shin, yeah. And his quote after after practice, when he had the crash, said, "Well, the shin's really sore because it was right by my knee, and I had bruised lungs, I had bruised something else, and I was, I was coughing off a bit of blood." But eh, you know, we race motorcycles. Mm. Then he put it forth on the grid. <laughs> I mean, second in the race. Yeah, yeah. Un unbelievable. Um, no, we haven't got long left, so I must take some more questions. We'll go maybe rewind a bit. I've got one here from Dominic Malvin. It's now 30 years since your epic British F3 battle with Ayrton. What is your defining memory of that season? My defining memory of that season? It's probably the bottom of a Rolls RT3 just above yeah, you. Yeah, with his side pod on my <laughs> shoulder so I couldn't get out of the car at Alton Park. I'm just doing a book. If I should mention that, I'm just doing a book. And there's a whole chapter on, the, on, the, on that season. And it's, it was really enlightening looking back and hearing from other people and remind, reminding myself of all the things that went went on that year. I think it will be 
winning at Silverstone where I very first beat Senna I think he, he beat me nine straight times and then I beat him and and, and the, it just transformed probably my career actually in my life at that point because I suddenly had this thought I can beat him this confidence and he knew the, exactly the opposite he knew that I could beat him and it just turned the season on its head and then uh, the rest is history we got we both went straight to F1 so I would think it'd be that moment I came in I was on uh, I was trying to get points in the British Championship, so would I have won the would I have won the British F3 Championship? I'd have carried on on that trajectory, probably not. I came in, I said to Eddie because we were easily fastest because Senna went on the European tyres. We were easily fastest in the British category that was going to score me maximum points that weekend in the for the British category. And I came and said, but we were like eighth or ninth overall or something like Eddie let's go European so we'd already used up a lot of our tyres we bolted a set of Yokohamas on it and I stuck it on pole I remember we'd, as soon as you just lifted a little bit for Beckett's you didn't lift the throttle again until the Woodcoach chicane if you got it absolutely right so Stowe and Club around the end were absolutely flat out it's brilliant and it stuck and then Senna crashed trying to stay with me and I won the race and it I, I often think well, should I should I just taken the British points that day but I think psychologically it then put me in a it just turned my my career around Motor racing is full of what ifs we've got another one here from Tom Power if Flavio had extended your contract by a few years rather than going, getting Patrese in the Benetton what do you think you could have achieved I'd say that hiring Patrese rather than yourself was the worst driver decision Flavio ever made do you agree he dumped Johnny Herbert as well, didn't he? Which I don't think was very smart, although Johnny was still recovering from his injuries. Um, I, I think I would have won a lot of races and I could have become world champion if, if Flav didn't um, part company. I got caught up in a very unfortunate situation where the Italians were moaning at Flav. You, know, you call yourself an Italian team, you race under a British licence, a British factory, Scottish team principal, South African and, and English designers an English and German driver, you know, wh which bit of that is Italian? And I think if you look, he changed it quite significantly for the following year. And they entered under an Italian license with an Italian driver and so on and so forth. So I got caught up also in the battle between Tom and Flavio and, and any number of things. And people didn't realize how good Michael Schumacher was at the time. So I got to the end of it. Well, I didn't get to the end of the year because I was... Uh, a journalist came up to me in August in, in Hungaroring and asked me what I was doing the following year. I said, I hoped I was driving for Benetton, of course. He said, well, don't you know, they've already signed Patrese. So I didn't get to the end of the year and find out. I found out through the media that I uh, that Flav was going to do that, which rather confirms the Italian media situation. Uh, it, it was a great shame because I was on a, I, I'd sort of found my way. It's the first time I'd been in a competitive Formula One car after eight years, and it needed a, a reset in my mind. And also handling Michael Schumacher wasn't the work of a moment either. But I, <coughs> but I did get on top of it. And it was, and I never. If you look at my career after that, it was Ligier, McLaren, a bad seat at McLaren, Ligier again. Uh, no, then um, yeah, then Ligier, then Jordan. It never. I. I never got it back. Uh, having said that, that weekend in Monza when I finished second to Ayrton and um, my, I beat Michael, as far as I was concerned, I was going to Williams the following year. And curiously, Ayrton leant over on the, on the podium in Monza and said to me, so we're we going to be teammates next year then. So we both thought we were going to Williams because Nigel that weekend had said he was going to IndyCar racing. 
and I'd already been in discussion with Frank anyway. So I thought the deal was pretty much done deal. Then I find out I'm going to be sharing the car, sharing the team with Ayrton, which I thought would be brilliant, to be honest. Um, but of course, neither of us ended up there in 93. Actually, for what it's worth, just while we're talking about Flavio, he's not necessarily the greatest guy in the world for admitting he was wrong. But he did, I remember interviewing him a few years ago, and he did say in the course of it, getting rid of you was the biggest single mistake he made in all his time that's right, running a team. Oh, that, that's sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, 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 easy no, to no, say no. now, isn't it? He said, I never understood, I never realised how good the guy was. Yeah, but... You know, I didn't do a good enough job to make sure... I have to get Patrese to find out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, you know, uh, if I'd have done a, a stronger job in the for early part of the season or something, then it might have been a no-brainer. But I, I got caught up in something that was much bigger than which, you know, than, than just being the racing driver in the team. Um, I think we're going to have to call a time to it because we, we really are an hour and over. Martin, thanks so much for coming in and enlightening My us pleasure. all on modern and, and past stories. Now, before you all go... We are currently closing our July issue, which is a Le Mans Spectacular. So do look out for that in shops at the end of the month in the UK and all over the world on the digital edition as well. In fact, just quickly, don't forget that we have a digital edition for Apple and Android tablets. Now that's really exciting news. So whatever tablet you have, you can read Motorsport Magazine on it. Just go to the website and find out a little bit more. For now, it's goodbye from me, Ed Foster. Goodbye from Martin Rundle, goodbye from Simon Aaron, and goodbye from Nigel Roebuck.